But look at Psalm 24. So let's open our Bibles and see what King David has to say about this subject, which is very interesting, which deals with God as the king of the universe. That's Psalm 24. And let me give you a little bit of background information. It's always important to understand the context in which something like this is written. After Moses led the Hebrew children out of Egypt in the Exodus, God gave him instructions to build a tabernacle. And this tabernacle was to be patterned after the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God in heaven. He gave him exact dimensions and told him what materials to use and so on and so forth. And he said, inside the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, I want you to place a box. And God called this box the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box made out of a acacia wood. And on the top of it, it was to have a, a gold lid. And inside that box, Moses was to place the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Aaron's rod was to be in there. And some manna representing God's provision. And then God said, and on top of that box, I want you to craft uh, two angels, cherubim, one on one side and one on the other side of this square box, with its wings pointing upward. So one angel's wings pointed that way, and the other's angel's wings pointed that way. And God said, when you set that box, that ark, in the tabernacle, then I will come down and my presence will dwell between the angels' wings. And so there was God's dwelling place on earth. He would come down and the glory of God dwelt between the angels' wings. Uh, a lot of superstition began to surround that box. The Jewish people thought, well, if we just carry that box in the battle with us, we'll win every war. They saw it as a talisman or a good luck piece. Well, as the Lord would have it, one day they're marching in the war against the Philistines, and they don't win the battle. And the Philistines capture the box, the Ark of the Covenant. And they uh, believe that they have stripped Israel of its power because it's captured the box. And the news is sent back to Jerusalem that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And when Eli, the old priest, hears that the Ark has been captured by the Philistines, he drops dead right on the spot. It was such a shock. And his daughter-in-law, who was pregnant at the time of the capturing of the Ark, had a baby at that moment. And she named the baby Ichabod. Because the ark had been captured. The glory of God had departed from Israel. And so the Philistines have the ark of the covenant and they own the ark. They possess the ark for seven months. And they wish they didn't have it for seven minutes because as soon as they began to own this ark, bad things began to happen to them. God sent plagues upon them. They would move it from one place to another, from one city to another, and wherever they took the ark, there was problems. Uh, people broke out in boils. Uh, others got tumors. And uh, they said, man, let's get rid of this thing. And they sent it back to Israel. <coughs> and they took seven months. That's all they had. 
And for 20 years, it, was, it sat uh, about 10 miles northwest of, of Jerusalem, the ark. And it ended up in a man's house. In fact. It sat there. And after King Saul died, and David ascended the throne, he said, let's bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And so that's what this psalm is about. This is a psalm that is describing the bringing of the ark back to Jerusalem. And this is sort of like a, an ascension psalm that is being sung uh, as, or is to be sung in reminiscence of that particular event. Does that make sense? In fact, uh, this is one of the times where when the ark arrived, David actually put on the dress of the priest and danced in the sight of the Lord. His wife thought he was crazy. Now, what we're going to have here in Psalm 24 is we're going to divide this into three sections. And section number one is going to be verses one and two. And this declares God's sovereignty. Okay? And then section two is going to be verses three through six. And then based on God's sovereignty, you're going to see that David asked a question. And he gives the answer to that question. That's section two. It's a question and answer section. And then section three will be verses seven through ten. And this is where David challenges the nation to worship God in light of the rest of the psalm. So this is a psalm of ascension, uh, probably chanted uh, later in later years, as when the Jewish people came to worship, you know, they would sing these psalms. And this psalm, psalm was probably chanted in a responsive way. If you've ever been in a church that has responsive reading, you know what a responsive reading is. That's where... Maybe the pastor will get up and he'll say a verse, and then the people will read the next verse, and it goes back and forth. Well, this is a song that was sung in that manner, and uh, let me give you sort of an example of how that would be. If you look at Psalm 24, uh, the first person or the first choir, first part of the choir would say, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then what would the people say? The world and all those that dwell therein. And then the first choir would sing, for he has founded it upon the seas, and he's established it upon the floods. And the next people would say, next verse. And toward the end, it would reach a crescendo in verse 10, where uh, the choir would sing, And who is this Lord of glory? And then there would be a response. The Lord, strong and mighty. See? Uh, the Lord, mighty in battle. And then the choir would sing, Lift up uh, your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you everlasting doors. And then the people would sing, the Lord of glory is coming. So this would be a responsive song. Okay? Now, it produced a, a, a cadence when it was sung. Now, this psalm has special interest to me because when I was in the fourth grade, I had an elementary school teacher who every day read a psalm to the students. And... This was the psalm that grabbed my attention because she read it in such a way it just images popped in my mind. Now you have to realize what this was like because I grew up in a home that was not church going. <clears throat> Very moral home. We had a Bible on the, on the uh, coffee table. But, and we never would put anything on it. My mother said, oh, you don't have to put anything on the Bible. So we never laid anything on it. But we never read it. Uh, so, 
uh, I had this respect for God's word, and I knew this was something special, but I never understood it. So my teacher would get up and she would read the 24th Psalm. Now you have to realize I lived in Baltimore, and not too long after this is when Mar uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare had the prayer taken out of school. And she was literally, she lived literally within walking distance of me. She lived in the, like the next neighborhood over. It looks like University Park versus uh, uh, Island Park. And you can actually walk there in six or seven blocks and there was her house. And uh, her son Bill Murray was the, he was the subject of this whole issue. So I was there when the prayer was taken out of school and it affected the Baltimore school system before it affected the rest of the nation. You were still having prayers in school in the 80s. <laughs> uh, they, they finished back in the 60s when So this reading of Psalms in the school system uh, ended between my fourth grade experience and my junior high experience. I actually had written a song about that holy thing, what happened with Madeline Mario here. My mother helped me. She came up with a tune. And uh, it went something like this. A teenager, a lonely heart. They're handing us a world they tore apart. Will they forbid in God we trust? They even took the prayer out of school. They took the prayer out of the school and they even changed the golden rule. But they'll never take the prayer out of the name. God created everyone. This book says, thy will be done. Yet they even took the prayer out of the school. And it went on for about three minutes. And uh, so, even though we never went to church, uh, for some reason, this, this psalm and all these events uh, affected my life. And for some reason, I had this spiritual part of me that I could never understand. It was never satisfied until I found Christ. So anyway, this psalm has uh, have a lot of feeling for this psalm. So let's look at it. Listen to this first section. This uh, declaration that God is sovereign. Look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. King James says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This speaks of God's universal uh, dominion over the world. Now, if the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, uh, how much does Caesar have? Zero. Zero. And this is why, when you, under, when you realize these concepts that come from the Old Testament, you realize that when Jesus was saying, render unto Caesar the things that were Caesar's, guess what he was saying that Caesar should get? <coughs> See, uh, Caesar didn't create anything. You know? So, oftentimes we will use that, that we always need to be obedient to our government. And that's not necessarily the case. Were we obedient to Great Britain during the revolution? <laughs> Do you remember what that issue was? Taxation without what? Taxation. Yeah. Why am I talking about politics? <laughs> now, by the way, uh, this verse, verse 1, is quoted in 1 Corinthians 10, 25, and 26. And that's the, the uh, part of Corinthians that deals about eating meat offered to idols. And in verse 25 of chapter 10, Paul says, Eat the meat! Eat the meat! That's his, that's his, uh, his bottom line. Eat the meat! And then he quotes this. 
For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's the reason why you can eat it, because guess what? God created it, it doesn't belong to an idol. That's nonsense. So that's the only time Psalm 24 is mentioned in the New Testament, and it's mentioned in conjunction with eating meat offered to idols. Now look what else it says in verse 1. The world and all who dwell therein, uh, they belong to God. How about the Gentiles? Do they belong to God? Yes, the Gentiles belong to God, not just the Jews. Uh, do the Arabs belong to God? Uh, do the Muslims belong to God? How about people of all kinds of crazy religions? And animists and politics. Do they all belong to God? Yes. They belong to God through creation. This is the task of evangelism. Our job as evangelists, as Christians, is to go into the world and proclaim to the nations that there is a creator God who's revealed himself through Jesus Christ, and we are to call those people to pledge their allegiance to King Jesus. Now that's evangelism. They don't know that. They've been fed a bill of goods, a bunch of lies. And so the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and guess what? The world and everyone who dwells in belongs to God. And in the end, when the Lord comes back and he sets up his throne, guess what? How many knees will that? Everyone will recognize that. Now this is the kingdom of God message that we're to go out and we're to preach and that Jesus preached when he came on earth. He said the kingdom of God is in. That means you need to submit. Now he describes the reason for God being sovereign. Look what it says in verse 2. For he, that's God, had, has founded it, he founded the world upon the seas, and he established it upon the floods or the waters. In other words, uh, God is sovereign over the world because God created the world. He founded the world. He established the world uh, by him being creator. Uh, he owns it. If you invent something, you own that invention. If you write something, you own that. If you write, that's called intellectual property. It's yours. You control it. If I ever finish this book that I'm writing, I'll own it. Right now, I don't own anything. <laughs> but if I do, it'll be mine. Guess what? God's created the world. Therefore, God is sovereign over the world. God owns the world. Now, it says he created this world, this earth, upon the seas and established upon the waters of the floods. And this is going all the way back to Genesis where God separates the, the waters, the seas from the seas, and the land emerges out of the waters, and he sets the waters, the, the, the earth, above the sea. The earth, for the most part, is above the sea level. So the earth stands out prominent. The seas are below that. Except in New Orleans. You know what happened there. The floods overtook the, the earth. And uh, in the beginning, there was chaos. Remember, it says in the beginning, there was void, and everything was in chaos. And this is a description of God taking everything that was void and in chaos, and he took control of it, and he made order out of it. So God controls the world. He's sovereign over the world. Now, in light of that, he asked a question. This comes to section 2. Look at verse number 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Uh, 
in light of who God is, uh, who can ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand in God's holy place? Now, the hill of the Lord is a reference to Zion, Mount Zion, uh, where the tabernacle was located. That's why it's called his holy place. That exact wording, that same wording, is over in Psalm 15. And it says, the, the hill is the location of the tabernacle. We've dealt with that in past psalms. So you can just mark that next to that verse, Psalm 15, 1. So here's the question. Who can ascend to Mount Sinai, and who can stand in the tabernacle? If you read Psalm 15, you'll discover who it is. In many ways, Psalm 15 elaborates upon what David is saying right here in Psalm 24. So who's qualified? Well, let's find out who's qualified. Look at verse 4. Here's the person qualified to stand in God's presence. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But the first thing he has is clean hands. Or clean there basically has the, the concept of innocence. Innocent, innocent hand, and a pure heart, uh, free of guilt. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with innocence, and we're dealing free of guilt. Now, Israel had a way that people could be innocent and free of guilt, and that was by making sacrifices to God. God forgave their sins. They had the Day of Atonement. So he's talking about people who have entered into a covenant relationship with God. Their sins have been forgiven. And now they're living life. Because when you're dealing with hands, look, you have hands and heart there. You see that? Hands deal with our actions. Heart deals with our motives. See, hands, that deals with that which is outward. Clean hands. Our actions must be innocent actions without guile. Uh, our motives, our inward actions uh, must be pure. Now, when the Pharisees attacked Jesus, one of the reasons they attacked Jesus is because he didn't do something before he ate. What was it? Watch the hand. Watch it. Hey! Psalm says you have to have We can hands. And Jesus said, hey, you know what? You're like whitewashed sepulchers. You're like tombs that have been cleaned on the outside. But guess what? Go on the inside, what are you? Filthy, rotten, dirty, corrupt. <laughs> Jesus is, and, and uh, David here was not talking about hands and hearts literally. Not literally your hands have to be clean. Literally, your heart has to, uh, your literal heart has to be pure. He's talking about your outward actions. That's what the hands represent. Your outward actions, your daily life, and your inner motives. The way you think have to match. Look, the hands have to be what clean. The heart has to be pure. Inward and outward have to match. Have to match. That's what he's talking about. When inward and outward match, and you're a pure person before the Lord, then you can enter into his presence. But if they don't match, then guess what you are? 
Who's the person who puts on a mask and acts one way but is different inside? That's a hypocrite. The hypocrite cannot approach God. And that's the, the gist of what he's trying to say here. So, he who has not lifted up his heart, look at verse 4, it's going to be a negative term. Positive terms, your, your outward and your inward must match. Can't be a hypocrite if you're going to approach God. Now he says it in negative terms. He who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity. My translation says an idol. I like vanity better. Old King James. He who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Uh, but my translation says idol, and that's okay. Because it's one thing, because it says if you're sworn deceitfully, you can't enter God's presence. And what he's describing here is a person that says one thing and does another. Uh, they say, I will serve Jesus. They walk forward and make a commitment to Christ. And I pledge my allegiance to Jesus. Or they entered the covenant with God in the Old Testament through the sacrifices and through the offerings. They say, oh God, I will serve you. And then guess what they do? It was all done deceitfully. It wasn't pure. It wasn't real. It was all in vain. You see, that's what he's describing here. Their life has become vanity. It's empty. Their, their, their commitment to the Lord was a deceitful commitment to the Lord. And so these are people who have made a commitment to the covenant, but they're not living out the covenant. They're hypocrites. Jewish hypocrites. You can't enter into the presence. Now look at the results. The one who has clean hearts, he's going to go back to that, the pure heart. Look what he says in verse 5. He, that's the person who doesn't do those things, who has the pure heart, he shall receive blessing from the Lord. That's the result. The Lord will lift up and give him a blessing. Uh, what is the blessing that he will receive from the Lord? Uh, it just means he will receive favor from the Lord. The Lord will favor this person. Uh, it goes on to say, and righteousness from the Lord, uh, from the God of his salvation. He won't only receive a blessing, he will receive righteousness. He'll be vindicated uh, by the Lord. And that's what God did to David all the time. Uh, David, guess what? David made a commitment to the Lord, and David lived out that commitment to the Lord. And guess what he expected from the Lord? He expected blessing. He expected to be vindicated. And when he marched off into a battle, or he made a decision, he expected God to vindicate him because he was not a hypocrite. He was, he was a man after God's own heart. And this is the promise, this is the result of the person who approaches God with clean hands and a pure heart, not a hypocrite. This is the generation of those who seek him, O Jacob. My translation says, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him. Now notice the word this. You see that? This. Uh, very important because it's pointing to a particular kind of person. This kind of person. The one with a pure heart, pure hand. Doesn't lift his soul up to vanity. Uh, doesn't swear deceitfully. This generation. This is Jacob. This is real Israel. 
Everybody else claims to be Israel, but not everybody that's Israel is Israel. Because they were living like hypocrites. They were to be judged. God judged people that called out his name but were not living for him. He says, this is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face. That's the only kind of person who has their prayers answered. Now look at that phrase right there. Who seek your face. Do you see that? What do you think that means? This is the generation of those who seek him. Or this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him. Who seek his face. To seek him means to seek his face. What in the world does it mean to seek his face? Now we all know 2 Chronicles 7, 14, don't we? If my people, to call upon my name, will do what? Correct? Yeah, seek my face. What we quote it all the time. What does it mean? <laughs> you know, we quote it, but do we really know what it means to seek his face? Well, it's very interesting. If you look just over uh, the Psalm 27, over there for a moment, it's described. It tells us exactly what it means to seek his face. And the best way to understand a phrase is to look at it in its context. And uh, just as David explained something in Psalm 15, what a pure heart was, and now he's going to explain what it means to seek his face. Look at Psalm 27 and look at verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. This is a David saying, hey, when I'm praying to you, Lord, when I'm crying out, hear me. So he's describing prayer. Have mercy also on me, and guess what? Answer me. Answer my prayer. When you said, look, seek my face. My heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. So, uh, what does it mean to seek? What it says in verse 7. It's to cry out to the Lord. To seek his face is to pray to God and expect him to answer. So that's how David is describing uh, seek his face. So he says, this, this is the generation who seeks him in a real way. The ones that are pure. The ones that aren't hypocrites. Who seek your face. And then look what he says in verse 7. We come now to this last section, this challenge. Look what he says. In light of what I've just said, verses 1 through 6, in light of the fact that only the people with pure hearts, pure motives, and that match outward actions will be blessed by the Lord. In light of that, look what he says in verse 7. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates. That's a command. That's in the imperative. He commands them to lift up their heads. And that's connected to verse 6. To lift up your head is the same as to seek God's face. So... You could say it like this. Therefore, verse 7, lift up your heads, O ye gates. And he goes on to say, be lifted up, you everlasting doors. <clears throat> now, gates and doors don't lift up heads. Did you notice that? I've never seen a gate that had a head. Well, some of them have lion's heads. But I don't think they could lift them up. They're inanimate objects. Doors don't have heads. They have knobs. They don't have heads. So what in the world does he mean when he says, lift up your heads, O you gates? 
and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. These are idioms. In my class on expositional preaching, I have to explain to my students what idioms are. And this is called an idiom of personification. And this is where you take an object and you personify it. And you have it doing things that it cannot do. To drive home a point, he's not talking about doors. He's not talking about gates. Guess what he's talking about? He's talking about people. He's talking about people. And he commands them to lift up their heads. Because guess how they're approaching God? Should I approach him? Will he answer my prayers? He said, lift your head up. Seek his face. He said, be bold. Be confident. God's guaranteed that those with pure hands and a clean heart, they're the ones that will have their prayers answered. That he will give them the blessings. They will be vindicated. He's saying, be bold when you go into the presence of God. Do that, he says. And the king of glory shall come in. Now remember, this is a song that's probably harkens back to bringing in the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. It's going to put it back into the tabernacle. So here they're coming in with it. And he says, hey, lift up your heads. And Ichabod, the glory that has departed will be reversed. And the glory will come back into the city of Israel. And you'll be able to seek his face because he'll be right there in your midst. And so he's describing that kind of event. And the king of glory shall come in. Now notice that he calls this glory, he attributes that to the title king. The king of glory shall come in. And now we know who he's talking about. He's talking about the Lord back in verse 1. So he describes the Lord, Jehovah, as the king of glory. The God of majesty shall come in. And now we have the question. Well, who is the king of glory? And then comes back the answer. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Now, that's what all these psalms have been about up until this point, isn't it? It's uh, when David's going to go out and face a battle, he wants the Lord to be with him. And when he ascended the throne, the first thing he did, one of the first things he did is he got that ark back into the city. So the Lord's presence would be right there. And during his whole reign, there's God's presence. He believed that God would go ahead of him and fight his battle. And because he was a man after God's own heart, he was pure. He knew that God would go forth and indeed bring the battle to victory. And that's why uh, in 20, Psalm 22, when he said, why are you forsaken? He sort of made clean heart, pure heart, clean hands. So he says, describes God, the God of glory, as the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And then he says, lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And again comes the question, well, who is this king of glory? 
And he says, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth, Pastor Shepherd today talked about God's name. The last name he mentioned was Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord who is mighty in battle, verse 8. He is the Lord of hosts in verse 10. He is the warrior God who leads a host of angels, heavenly hosts. He doesn't lead David's army as much as he leads his own army. And his own army goes before David and basically when God's army and all the angelic hosts go before David and his army, uh, the battle's already won. Because if God's for you, Remember when the prophet, when Elisha said, what's going to happen here? And uh, then his eyes were open. The assistant's eyes were open. And he looked out and he saw all of God's army, the angelic force right there, right before his eyes. So he describes that God is this mighty warrior God who has a heavenly host. Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, said, hey, Paula can't crucify me. Guess what I could do if I wanted to? I could call down 10,000 angels. It's like that. The Lord of hosts would answer. But in this case, this was God's purpose for Christ. So he says, that's who the God of glory is. He's the Lord of Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, of angelic beings. He is the King of glory. Now, when you look at that, we see three sections. One, God's sovereign, and everything that belongs, everything on earth belongs to Him, and that includes you. Number two, in light of God being the sovereign creator, great God, the question is, who could stand in His presence? And the answer is, the person whose life match, matches inward and outwardly. The person who's made a pledge of allegiance to Christ and actually lives it out and is not a hypocrite. That's a real Christian. Everybody else is just a professing Christian. That's the person who can enter into his presence. Well, who is this God that we can enter into his presence? Hey, and, and then when you enter into his presence, you see his face, he gives you his blessing. He gives you his favor. And you'll be vindicated because you're his and you're doing what's right. He'll take care of you. Well, who is this God that will take care of me? David says. Especially when I go out and do a battle. Ah, don't worry. He's on your side. He is the Lord of glory. Mighty in battle. The one that goes before you. Heavenly host. He fights our battles. I want you to know that God has... He clears the way for us so many times and we don't even know it because the war is taking place in the heavens. Where we can't even see it. You don't know how many times he's rescued us from danger. What did Paul say? He said, we fight not against. We fight against powers and principalities. See, there, the, the, what we see here on earth is very limited. There is something going on. There are powers behind all the world dictators and evil governments. There are demons and Satan all behind them. 
They're the ones that are motivating the people to kill six million people and have a genocide over here. Satan was a liar from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's the one that motivates people to do this evil. And guess what? You can knock that person off, and you can knock Saddam off, and you can knock this guy off, and you can guess what? Another one just rise up. Satan will just energize another one. And so, if we're going to win the battle, in the end, we have to depend upon the Lord of hosts. Because he's the one that sends out his angels and opens the way for us. And then in the end, all the foes will be vanquished. And the scripture says, and they'll all be put under the foot of Christ. And the last foe that shall be conquered is death. And then Christ comes and he sets up his kingdom. And all the world bows their knee to Christ, the King of Glory. Next week we'll look at Psalm 25. I don't think that we probably, if I ask any of us to quote six verses out of Psalm 25, I'm not any of us to do that. So we'll see what Psalm 25 is next week. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, help us to realize that uh, you are glorious. Your glory is your presence with us. You were with Israel. They encamped around the tabernacle. You were right there in the midst of your people. Always available. Through this covenant relationship that you've established. And yet so many broke that covenant. They swore deceitfully. And now, Lord, you are in our midst, in the church. And we've made a covenant with you through Christ. And many of us, Lord, have sworn deceitfully. We have lifted up our soul in vanity. Our life has been empty. There's no matching of the inward and the outward. Oh, Lord, help us to pledge our allegiance to the Lamb, to Jesus Christ, and then live for Him. Lord, that is where the blessing comes. That's where the victory comes. In Christ's name we pray.